hope that we can all build better together and create these really sometimes wacky and crazy ideas because they do have relevance and benefit for each other. So it's just that hope and optimism that whether it's through MA or through volunteering or whatever it looks like, we can just make a better world together. From SSR Studios, it's Tech Vitals, a show about emerging technologies and innovations. We will take a deeper dive at how things like AI, VR, and sensor technologies are changing how we live and work. I'm one of your hosts, Zach Hilliard. And I'm your other host, Debbie Gregory. We are searching for cutting-edge people using technology to solve cutting-edge problems. Each episode, we will be interviewing amazing thought leaders that are navigating the uncharted waters of emerging technology. Without having a crystal ball to disclose what's coming, how do design professionals address the future demands of built environments? Well, to learn more on this question, we were happy to sit down with Mark Bryan and Jonathan Wilsch of MA Architects to hear how they address these design challenges. Mark is the Director of Innovation and Research, a Senior Interior Designer, Certified Futurist, and Foresight practice leader. Jonathan is the director of healthcare and higher education studio, as well as the healthcare practice leader at MA Architects. Mark and Jonathan describe the roles of a foresight practitioner or futurist and how they apply this technology to the design and construction of a variety of built environments. They highlight a recent project application with the Ohio State University School of Nursing and the correlating signals and drivers to frame respite rooms for clinical staff, designing for experiences, and what the future of architecture might look like in the years ahead. Thank you for joining us. We're very excited about our guests today, and I will let them introduce themselves. They're from MA Architects. So my name is Mark Bryan. I am the Director of Innovation and Research for MA Architects. Um, I am also a certified futurist and lead our foresight practice here at MA. Hello, my name is Jonathan Welch. I am the director of the Healthcare and Higher Education Studio here at MA Architects. Uh, we have a significant uh, studio uh, practicing uh, healthcare in the region and beyond uh, in both healthcare and the higher education markets. Great. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. And Mark, I think a lot of people are probably thinking futurist. What is that? So if you could start off just kind of um, sharing a little bit about what that is and how you got interested in that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's probably my number one asked question when I tell people what I do. You know, my favorite joke is to say, I'm sorry to disappoint everybody, but I don't have a crystal ball beside my desk. I don't stare off into the, you know, ether. Uh, I do stare off just thinking about what's coming. But in essence, um, I think of uh, foresight and futurism is really is the secondary research practice. In essence, you know, if you're familiar with secondary research, you're out there getting the literature, you're reviewing the data, and then you are coming up with what you think the information is telling you. And in essence, that's what I do with foresight and futurism is I look at what we call as signals and drivers. And I take that data from both yesterday and today, and then I focus it through what the what's causing change in our world around our topic. So whether it's the future of architecture design, whether it's the future of healthcare, um, I just did forecast on what the future of diversity, equity, inclusion looks like for design as a practice. Whatever that topic is, we then create um, avenues or pathways that we want to work toward or work to avoid. So it's uh, it's a lot of just thinking deeply and taking the information of what's happening and then moving past that to think what the future might look like. And I know you're involved with the um, Institute for the Future. Can you tell us a little bit about that organization? Absolutely. Yeah. So the Institute for the Future is where I got my training to be a certified futurist. And what was happening about uh, two years ago, what we were finding is our clients would just get stuck. 
they would be very hesitant about how they could move forward and they would ask us, okay, so what are the trends we need to be paying attention to? What are the, the what's the data we need to be doing? How do we need to be incorporating technology in a certain way? And so we would offer our advice and our opinion and, and that would work to an extent. But some of them just were very hesitant about what the future looked like because they couldn't figure it out. And so I found the Institute for the Future and uh, they offer a foresight essentials training, um, starting in our workplace practice and then um, have found great success with that and have just been starting to implement it across all of our sectors. So now, uh, I mean, last year we were talking about looking into what the future of the caregiver looks like because of the pandemic. And it sounds to me like COVID has really brought along a lot of that conversation and hopefully, you know, stimulated a lot of new conversations in that area. Um, and we will put the link to the um, Institute for Futures in our show notes so that those that are listening um, can, can link to that as well. So, Jonathan, tell us a little bit about how you have brought this into your um, architecture firm. It's kind of unique, I think, and um, you're setting a trend for the future. Obviously, the design of healthcare spaces is a specialty and requires a, a great deal of subject matter expertise. Uh, when looking to, for ways to innovate healthcare design. So we're really lucky to have a group um, you know, like Mark and, and his colleagues to, to do some of that legwork for us, uh, who are able to you know, look in the places where we wouldn't look, turn over the stones that we wouldn't turn over, um, think about research from a different perspective than we might as designers, uh, so that there is, is more depth to the design, more depth to the research, uh, and you know, just that, that wider perspective on what it is that we're doing. Uh, that kind of information really, really helps us when we are designing our projects. Gives us the ability to, to dig deeper and for us as designers to spend more time doing the design work itself. Just, I'm just curious, how long has the department been, been part of the practice at MA? Is it relatively new? So we've been doing our innovation and research for about six years now. Um, started off doing white papers. Uh, so we published four white papers now. The first was on senior living and the correct lighting levels needed to um, help reduce fall risks. The next one was on uh, the future of higher education and distance learning. And then we published two on co-living. And then we started doing trend forecasting events. Um, we started doing multi-generational charrettes. And then, like I said, about two years ago is when we were figuring out that foresight is really something that we needed to be incorporating into our project. And so it was something that happened right before the pandemic. And then we've just been working on it. And like I said, uh, and actually Debbie, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of our clients are responding really, really well to this idea right now, because what they're realizing is that they themselves may not have spent as much time thinking about all the possibilities of the future, you know? And so that's the one good thing about foresight is you really can think outside the box. It allows you to think more broadly versus just saying, okay, here are the trends and let's just address the trends. You know, it's, it's getting to the needs both today and then yesterday. So a lot of the times I'm also working with companies just on what their strategic plans want to be and, and what the innovation needs to be in order to incorporate it into their strategic plans. I think the process also provides a, a framework for people to respond to. Uh, it's difficult for people to generate their own ideas sometimes uh, when thinking about, you know, what is the future? Uh, what is innovation? Uh, where are we heading from here? But with a little prompting and a little guiding, um, some of that information can be drawn out within that framework. And it, it gives people a level of comfort that they're responding to information as opposed to generating it on their own. And I'd like to stay on this topic just for a second, because I know that as a nurse, you know, this is um, 
this is really a topic within nursing right now with resiliency and respite rooms. And I know that you've done some work with nursing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so we have actually, uh, one of our projects is the uh, College of Nursing here at uh, the Ohio State University. And they have implemented several respite rooms. The reason being is that uh, when we were talking to them about this, they really latched onto the idea that uh, caregivers need to care for themselves and they should learn that as soon as they start going through school. And so they wanted to implement these respite rooms in order to start teaching caregivers those practices, that, that idea of mindfulness, that idea of taking a break. You know, taking a break is so essential. You are less likely to make a mistake, make a mistake if you take a break. And so they very much wanted to um, implement in those into our space, into our, our, our building. I don't know, John, if you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, the, um, certainly real estate in, in a healthcare environment is, is very costly space and, and very precious space when we're, we're laying out departments. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the pandemic has really refocused an effort on taking care of those who are providing care. Um, you know, while it, it's easy to say that's non-revenue generating space and, and, and space that's not really providing for the care of patients, it has a huge role in caring for those who are taking care of the patients. And, uh, and, and there's certainly been a renewed interest in making sure that, that those spaces are there, um, that, that people do have access to, to light, to color, to the things that they may not get all the time. Uh, and sometimes just a place to get off stage, uh, to just get out of the noise, out of the, the commotion that's happening and, and recharge. And, and when you're thinking about a, a 12-hour shift or, or even longer, um, it, it really underscores the importance of that type of space for those who are, are having to make critical decisions about how to take care of, of the patients that they are dealing with. I mean, what I would just offer, you know, is that it all started with the 12 principles of biophilia. You know, when you think about body positioning, you think about seeing natural materials, having an experience that, you know, that is more comfortable. Um, so a lot of our principles in the, these respite spaces is around how we can build wellness through nature-inspired items. So we've got things that are uh, show wood grain because staring at bark and wood grain actually helps calm the central nervous system. We also have tools in there that are like color, not like coloring books, they are coloring books, um, because coloring, as we know, helps to calm people down. So it's not, it's not a very robust space from a design standpoint because ultimately we don't need to over-design something where we want to calm people down, right? We just need to give them the tools and the ability, the choice, the control that they need in order to help build more uh, resiliency into their lives. So are some of those underway right now, Jonathan? Because that's going to be interesting research, I think, that will have some dynamic shifts on how we plan. Absolutely. The, the goal would be to do a, a POE for every project that we complete, um, you know, partially because we want to understand how the spaces are working out just in general from an architectural standpoint, but also to affirm or, or, or lead us to further develop uh, some of our approaches and what we're doing for progressive healthcare design uh, so that we can do better in the future. It, it doesn't always happen. Uh, you know, on bigger projects, it's easier to kind of wrap your head around how many things and, and, and justify the time uh, to, to take care of a POE, but it's just as important on some of the smaller projects too. So Jonathan, when you're talking to healthcare clients and actually even um, commercial you know, buildings, are you seeing a different response to the conversation around respite rooms for their staff? Healthcare providers are any more apt to provide the 
the respite rooms than other clients. They may understand the need for it more because of, of being healthcare providers. Uh, but due to the cost of, of healthcare spaces and all the challenges that are, are driving healthcare design today, uh, particularly from the pandemic and the, the space requirements, the need for additional space, um, it's, it's hard to justify that non-revenue space that I was speaking of earlier. However, I, there certainly is a recognition that it, it's needed in those healthcare spaces. Um, but I think even going outside of, of healthcare to higher education or corporate or any place, there is certainly um, an increased awareness of the, um, the, the, the mental needs of, of staff who are working in those environments, uh, the, the needs of you know, students in a higher education setting. Uh, it doesn't matter who the users are. There is a recognition that mental health is a very real need and is just as important as physical care in the day-to-day -day life of, of those who are occupying spaces. And if I could offer, so we've been looking into what the next evolution of the respite room looks like because of things like this, where we're talking about how can we take some of the principles and things that we did and maybe implement them into a more traditional setting that might might find, like, so like a break area. What is it about the respite room that we could take and put into a break area that offers some of that comfort that may not have the same effects um, we've also gotten a lot of questions just about, well, is this a one-person room or a multiple-person room? So we think of this as a one-person room right now, and we really try to advocate that it's separate from a phone room, it's separate from a mother's room, so that it can have separate function. Um, but we are looking into how we can have more quiet room spaces where that is a more communal space, because communal space is just as important as personal space as well, too. I'm thinking about the rooms that you're describing there, Mark, those environmental services or mechanical, electrical, plumbing uh, technology, those things that make an environment special. Could you talk a little bit about the example you just shared? What might change? Like, is it an automated process of do not disturb this or sound or light? And like all of these things have some kind of like core discipline that supports them from a facility standpoint. So a lot of this is the messaging forward. What integral meetings or sequences need to change in order to alter the outcomes for this initiative on our traditional design planning approach? So there was a lot to that question. I feel like there was several parts to that question. So I'm going to try to unpack it. So if I miss something, just let me know. Um, so from a traditional meeting standpoint, A, the first part is just in the upfront conversation when you're talking about it with your client in terms of what is their goal? Um, we, we, and their goal for themselves, for the people that they're seeing, they're caring for, as well as for their employees too. And so if they're having a lot of burnout, if they're having a lot of turnover, that's part of the conversation. And we can then figure out what we want to do. If it's a respite room, if it's a quiet room, what is it like, are they having trouble with culture and community? Because that might mean that you might want more of a communal space than you might want a individualized space. If they're just seeing, which I'm sure everybody is, a total, uh, meltdown and burnout, then maybe we want to talk about what respite rooms look like. But it also might be a good opening conversation just to talk about how they can implement some mindfulness principles into the, their office that allows them to build some of that resiliency as a group too. Um, from a technology standpoint, some of the, the next evolutions that we're looking into are sound and how we can incorporate sound into the space that will allow people to choose what noise um, they can hear. If it's a guided meditation, if it's some kind of just binaural beats, something to that effect that uh, allows them to uh, use technology to help them. Um, so far, we've been a little bit hesitant to 
use full technology because of all of, uh, sometimes people just need a, a tech break, if you will. Um, so one of the things that we're looking at is what is a truly immersive technologically um, upgraded respite room look like? Because there are just things when you allow light control, when you allow people to choose what they see um, from a visual standpoint, like one of the signals that we saw during the pandemic was people sharing videos of their windows across the world. So you were able to see like out of your, uh, through your computer, out the window of somebody across in Spain. And so are there technological ways that we can allow for people to do that or just to see uh, a replay an image? You know, reminiscent therapy is, is a huge tool in senior living. And so nostalgia is a huge uh, thing that's happening right now where people are trying to reconnect to their past and their history. So I think technology can help us with that. Um, and then just lighting in general is a huge crucial thing when it comes to these spaces that we, we need to have people understand because what you don't want to have is a you don't want to have just one type of lighting you want to provide choice for different types of lighting so that they happen at multiple levels um, and then also dappled lighting is a huge thing that um, we uh, encourage it goes back to our primitive brains where we were on the serengeti plains and we had the tree over our head that's hardwired into our dna that that dappled lighting that comes through that tree actually helps calm us down and so it's about making sure that there's a variety of functions um, when we're having those conversations those programming conversations Thinking about what keeps your passion alive and sparks joy in your life, what are the things you like to do outside of leading the industry in futures and uh, foresight? What are the things that make uh, Mark and Jonathan's days feel fulfilled? It, it's probably an extension of, of uh, who we are, the kind of training that we had, and probably what led us to design in the, the first place. But finding creative ways for, pro for problem solutions um, extends well beyond the design of buildings uh, and, and really, I think, really impacts how I think about much, most everything in my life. You know, probably to the disdain of my wife at sometimes when I have to come up with a process for everything and think about uh, how everything gets planned out uh, so that I achieve something that I, I really hope to. But that's okay. Uh, design thinking is fun, and, and I, I really firmly believe that design has the ability to solve just about any problem that's out there if we're given the opportunity to apply design thinking to it. I would just say that, uh, so my grandmother you know, was an artist, and she introduced me to painting. And what I realized is that that carried her through uh, all into her later life. And so design became my first art outlet and passion. Um, after a couple others, you know, that I did in high school and whatnot. And then I moved into writing, um, you know, so I do some writing on the side and that has also helped me, you know, when I need to break away from something, it's best to not do the same thing I've been doing over and over again. And so I'll work on, you know, like whatever I'm, my, my book and whatnot that I'm working on. And that's my way to help um, take my brain out of what I'm doing. Um, because then that brings a renewed passion because while I'm working on this thing over here, something just starts to settle in the back and then I'll be able to bring that to fruition uh, with what I'm working on in the forecast or design standpoint. And the other thing is just, you know, to have optimism and hope. Um, I think I'm a very maybe overly optimistic person sometimes, but I think it's better to come at it from that standpoint um, versus a negative standpoint. So I, I hope that we can all build better together and create these really sometimes wacky and crazy ideas because they do have relevance and benefit for each other. So it's just that hope and optimism that whether it's through MA or through volunteering or whatever it looks like, we can just make a better world together. Thank you very much for, for taking the time out of your day today. We do appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. It was absolutely fun. Thanks for the conversation. 
As we build in the digital transformation of Industry 4.0, get connected with our innovative team. If this conversation has left you inspired, curious, or just wanting to hear more about emerging technology, there are a couple ways you can join us. We welcome you to subscribe and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. For more resources about today's content, please check out the episode show notes or drop us an email, techvitals at ssr-inc.com. Culture matters. Our mission is to make a positive difference for our clients, colleagues, and communities. See our mission in action on your favorite social platform. On Instagram, at smithsackmanreed. On Twitter, at ssr underscore inc. On LinkedIn, at ssr and on Facebook at Smith Second Green. This podcast would not be possible without our incredibly talented team of experts. Special thanks to our dynamic EP, Blake Moeller, our senior communications associate, Lauren Dean, and the exceptional support staff at SSR HQ located in Nashville, Tennessee.